I love Advent Sundays. All through my years as a college student here, I was never able to stay in December and witness just singing Christmas carols together as a church family, and I, I just love this season so much. So last Sunday, Dr. Campbell walked us through the genealogy at the beginning of the book of Matthew and showed us the record of grace there, how the line of Christ is littered with God's grace and his faithfulness. And this morning, we study not a record of grace, but grace incarnate, grace itself, as we continue our Advent series through the Gospel of Matthew. So quick question, have you ever wondered what does the word Advent mean? Because I think I went through my entire childhood without anyone ever explaining to me what the word Advent means. So Advent comes from a Latin word which simply means coming, arrival, or visit. So when we speak of the Advent of Christ, we speak primarily of two different things. We speak of his first Advent when he came as a little baby some 2,000 years ago. We also speak of his second advent, his return, his second coming. So this morning we're going to pay special attention to Jesus' first advent as told in the Gospel of Matthew. And remember the beauty and the glory of God with us, Emmanuel. This one phrase, God with us, it's it's such a a pregnant phrase, filled with meaning. And it should cause all of us to wonder at the work of God. Why? Because God is all-powerful and you're, you're just human. God is the creator of all things visible and invisible. And you're one of his creatures. God created time itself and you and I are bound by it. God is everywhere at once. You and I have bodies. And most importantly, God is perfect and flawless Pure light, ever constant, never changing. And you and I are unfaithful, always changing and mired with sin. How could this great God ever dwell with us? You and I could never ascend to God. He must descend to us. And this is what we study in the first advent of Christ. This is our passage today. The miracle of the incarnation of Jesus. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to open your word this morning and study the center of the scriptures. Study Jesus himself who came into the world humbly in the most mean of estates as we just sang. So Lord, as we study the birth of Christ, help us to learn also of our salvation and of his coming, which is indeed very soon. Pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So our passage today, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we're going to break it up into three different sections. First, we have the situation in verses 18 through 19. Then we have the explanation in verses 20 through 23. And then we have the confirmation in verses 24 through 25. So starting off with the situation here. Read along with me in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So first of all, as we dive into this, notice the very beginning of this passage. God was born. 
He didn't come upon the clouds as a fully mature man. He didn't just pop into existence like some comic book superhero. Jesus wasn't created in some lab, and he wasn't even fashioned as Adam and Eve were. No, he was born. That is how like us Jesus was. He was born. And while he was a child, he was still 100% the Lord of the universe. As we contemplate that, that the God of everything becoming flesh, we should be struck by how humble that is and the grand humility of the incarnation. And you and I struggle to talk with our neighbor who's different than us or, you know, love our child who's being impatient or be patient with a spouse. But may this thought of Christ's humility cause us to read Philippians chapter 2 a bit differently. Let me read a couple verses from Paul's letter to us. He says, Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a human. And this is the situation. Christ emptying himself by becoming a man. So the Bible is filled with tons of miraculous births. Dr. Campbell talked to us about many of them last week. And there seems to be one similarity that goes through the entirety of Matthew's genealogy. And there's one word that describes them all. Scandal. Think of it. Judah and Perez, scandal right there. David and Bathsheba, scandal. Ruth the Moabite, scandal. And Jesus' birth fits quite neatly into this. Really, the scandal in this passage is palpable. Let, let's like dissect this and look at Mary's point of view and Joseph's point of view at, at what's going on in this situation. So this passage starts off and says that Mary, this Jewish woman, was betrothed to Joseph. Now, Jewish betrothal was similar to engagement nowadays, except for one important point. Betrothal in the Jewish days was legally binding, which means if you broke it off, it would be tantamount to divorce. Or if while you were betrothed, you were sexually unfaithful, it would be tantamount to adultery. So that is where Mary was. She was in this waiting period um, of before she began to actually live with her husband, Joseph, And yet, they hadn't quite come together yet. They they were not living together yet. So notice that Christ was conceived not when she was already married, which probably would have been the easiest way to make this not be that awkward. Christ was not conceived in her before she was betrothed, which maybe would have made her situation easier. Rather, contrary to all human reason, Christ was conceived in Mary's womb at the time when it would cause the most confusion and create the most scandal. And this was deliberate. This is how God works. Why did God act in this way? I believe it was to grow her faith, Mary's. In this situation, she has has nothing to do but trust wholeheartedly in the Lord. So that's Mary's perspective. Now verse 19 shows us what was going through Joseph's mind at the same exact time. Just imagine with me Joseph's thoughts when he first sees his legal wife with a sizable bump. 
I, I can't imagine what was going through his head in that exact moment. The shame, the anger, all the emotions. But most people in history would have completely lost their cool at that moment. And it's important that Joseph didn't. And the passage tells us why. It says, Joseph being a righteous man. And this is a very important phrase, which teaches us about who this man was. Now, whenever the Bible describes someone as righteous, as it does with Noah or Abraham or Job, it doesn't just mean that they do good things. It doesn't mean that Joseph was really involved in social work. No, when the Bible describes someone as righteous, that means that God changed his heart. That he is saved from the inside outward. It always refers to salvation. So because Joseph was saved and was righteous inwardly, he could not just wink at this apparent evil that he saw. He had to act. He had to do something because his legal wife looked like she was unfaithful. But notice also the next phrase. It says he did not desire to put her to shame. And you see this this tension right here in Joseph's actions, which actually is a picture of Christian ethics. Because on the one hand, Joseph was staunch with the truth. He had to act. He had to do something in his mind. But on the other hand, he was filled with mercy. He didn't want to just put her to shame. And I think we often so struggle to like lean one way or the other. We lean so hard on the truth that we lose the mercy and the kindness. Or we lean so hard with mercy that we are a bit loose on the truth. And yet we're meant to hold both of these together. And these two conclusions from his perspective led him to the thought process that a quiet divorce was the best way, was the best way to handle this situation. And this really is a crazy situation that young Mary and Joseph are in. And not only that, but notice the Lord appeared to Mary, as we know from the Gospel of Luke, and then deliberately waited to appear to Joseph. He didn't talk to them both at once when they were on a date. No, he he appeared to Mary first, let that situation get awkward, and then appeared to Joseph after Joseph had spent time worrying and thinking about it. And I think the Lord, he does this in many situations in life as well. Because his goal, his goal was to grow their faith in God's word. What what a strange situation this is. And we have a lot to learn from this situation of Christ's birth. And first and foremost, what we need to learn is that God's ways are not man's ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And his ways are not the way that you and I work. He is incomprehensibly sovereign. Working all things together according to his beautiful, sovereign plan. And this is how God works when he brought Christ into the world. And this is also how he works when he brings Christ to our hearts today. And salvation. Listen to the third verse that we just sang in A Little Town of Bethlehem. It says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Lord enters in. Christ came through tons of difficulties and inexplainable circumstances, and that's the same way that saving faith often comes to our hearts as well. 
I believe it's Paul who said in the book of Acts that he says, he was going about to all the churches in a region and he was telling them, it says that he was encouraging, encouraging them by saying, it is through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of heaven. And it seems like an oxymoron for encouragement to be put right next to that, to tribulations. And yet, this is the way the Lord works in his children. This is the way the Lord works through his son. Because God has different goals than you and I do. His goal is increase of faith and looking towards eternity. And everything that happens here happened to grow Mary and Joseph's faith. And so that we would be encouraged through it. So no doubt all of you here are dealing with a variety of difficult circumstances in your life. So my word to you is be encouraged. Be encouraged that even when it seems like the Lord is least at work, he is. He's bringing things together according to his plan. So here we have this scandalous situation. And then the next three verses show us the explanation from the angel to Mary's husband, Joseph. Read with me verses 20 through 23. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What a beautiful passage this is. There's so much gospel here. So the angel explains to Joseph three different things. He explains that this child would be the son of God. He explains that this child would be a savior. And he explains that this child will be the center of all the scriptures. So let's dive into those three things. First of all, that Jesus would be the son of God. And I love the first verse of what child is this that we just sang. It's from the perspective of the shepherds coming to see this lowly and normal baby. Listen to this. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch their keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. So the angel is saying to Joseph right here, this seemingly normal baby is 100% the God of the universe at the same time. What a miracle. The angel is assuring him that what he thinks is adultery is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's good for us to notice. In this entire passage this morning, the same phrase is used twice. The The phrase, from the Holy Spirit. Once in the earlier verses and once here by the angel. And we speak of the Holy Spirit often. We recite, we believe in the Holy Ghost and the Apostles' Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, we say that the Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. And so we we know that this Holy Spirit is God himself. And yet, he has a different role than the Son and the Father. Three separate persons with one perfect unified essence. This is the Trinity. And throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit's work primarily is to give life. The Holy Spirit gives 
If you recall, in Genesis 1, in the very beginning of the Bible, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, ready to give life to the creation. The Holy Spirit fills up the kings and the judges of Israel to do fantastic things. And the Spirit is the one who inspired the prophets to speak of things that they had never seen. And the Holy Spirit is the one who changes your heart and gives you faith to believe in Jesus. The Spirit gives life in the Scriptures. And this same Holy Spirit is the cause of the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. God himself made totally into flesh and bone, just like you and me. And the angel here is speaking about the miracle of the virgin birth, which no doubt we all have heard a million times as we've grown up in church. But this is why Jesus was truly the son of God, because physically speaking, he had no father. He had a heavenly father. And as a, as a small side note, this is one of the many places in the scripture that speaks to the fact that life begins at conception. Notice what the angel says. The angel says, that which is conceived in Mary is already Jesus. So let us learn from this, that life begins at conception. But Mary had never known a man before the conception of Christ. And it's interesting that this doctrine of the virgin birth, especially in the past 100 150 years, has come to a lot of attack by scholars, by so-called wise people. So let me ask the question, why does the virgin birth matter to you and I this morning? Is this really a hill worth dying on, the fact that Mary never knew a man before she birthed Jesus? Absolutely, yes. Here are a couple reasons. First of all, the scripture tells us so. The scripture tells us so. And if the word of God speaks, the same word that called into existence everything that we see, the heavens and the earth, if that word speaks, we have to obey it. We have to. And that word specifically says later on that Joseph knew her not until the day Jesus was born. And also, we believe that God's word gives life. The word of God gives life through the Spirit I've got two passages that speak to this. In Moses' song in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, he says this. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no other God beside me. I kill and I make alive. And Hannah also sings in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. So first of all, we have to believe the virgin birth because the scripture tells us so. Second of all, it completes the miracle of the incarnation. It really does. In this way, Jesus is truly human, 100% like you and I. And yet he is fully God. And God is his father. The third reason is that the virgin birth is no more fantastic or unbelievable than resurrection. And this is a foundational tenet of being a Christian. If you are a Christian, you believe that Jesus died on the cross and that the power of God rose him from the dead. He was completely dead. Now he is completely alive. And we also believe that every single one of us will be raised on the last day. That the dust of our bodies will be raised into perfect, eternal bodies. And is that really more crazy than the idea of a virgin conception? 
I don't think it is. I actually met with an old friend of mine this past month who is an unbeliever, and we were talking about spiritual things, about church. He was asking me about my vocation. And he, he had a lot of questions about the scientific claims of the Bible, most of them centering around creation or the flood and all these things, which is normal, right? I'm sure you've had that experience of talking to unbelievers about the fantastic things that happen in the Bible. And I re recommend this logic to you because it has helped me out in explaining things when you might feel tongue-tied. Because he was asking me about the flood and about creation, and I told him, I'm like, hey, hey, Kyle, what's important here is that I already believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his body was completely dead, and then it came completely back to life, and the same thing's going to happen to me someday. I already believe that. Therefore, it's not too much of a step to also believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So I recommend that strategy to you. It might lead into awesome gospel conversations if you let it. So that's one thing that the virgin birth means to us, but let me point out something else. In a lot of ways, every single salvation is like the virgin birth. Every single one of you who calls Jesus Christ as your Lord is just as miraculous as the virgin birth. Why? Because every salvation is an unbelievable miracle. We sang this in one of our hymns. It says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. So it was the Holy Spirit that miraculously clothed Christ in flesh, and it's the same Spirit that gives his children believing hearts as well. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, confirms this to us. It says, He, Jesus, came to his own people, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, and listen to this part, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We so often forget this, the miraculous nature of a salvation, of someone who believes. And I think that's because Augustine rightly says that miracles become commonplace when they're a daily occurrence. The same is true about salvation, and the same is true in a way of the virgin birth. So let us not lose our wonder of God's work here. So this child would be the son of God. He also would be a savior, according to this next verse. The angel assures Joseph that this miraculous baby would be the savior of all of God's people. Now, when that word savior came to mind, no doubt the Israelites and Joseph, they were thinking about Moses who saved them from the slavery and bondage of Egypt. Or maybe David came to their mind, the great warrior who battled the Philistines and saved them from their physical enemies. And yet, both of these men only could save from temporary things and physical problems. They could not save God's people permanently because only Christ can save you from that which is inescapable, death. Only Christ can save you from that which is eternal. Only Christ can save you from your wicked heart. 
which means that he truly is the greatest savior of them all. His very name describes both his mission and his purpose because Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Christ is someone that God has stamped his purpose and and approval on. But his earthly name right here, Jesus, literally means Jehovah saves. You could even shorten it down even more and say Savior. That's what his name is. He's a Savior. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's you and me. Jesus himself is the Savior from the penalty due for your sins. And he's the protection from the wrath of God to come. You know, one thing I've noticed in my short life is the more secular, secular Christmas gets, the less we hear about the cross during Christmas time, right? The more the culture becomes ingrained in this theme of Christmas and buying presents, not that those are bad, the less we hear about the ugly side of Jesus' life, which is the cross. In many ways, I grew up with a cross-less Christmas at my church. And it really is easy to become so enamored with the beauty and the fun and the simplicity of Christ's incarnation that we forget the reason why he came into this earth, which was to die. You and I were born in order that we might live. Jesus was born so that he would die on a cross for his people. That's what's meant in this one phrase. He will save his people from their sins. It's pointing forward to the cross. So what does this mean for us? Once again, Jesus' goals are not primarily temporary things. His goals are eternal. He doesn't just want to save you from your tough life or your hard job situation or your difficult marriage or your failing body or your present illness. He wants to save you for everlasting life. That is Christ's primary purpose. And so for for those of you who claim to be Christians this morning, perhaps you've been putting too much stock in temporary things and not enough stock in eternal things. What fills your prayers more? God saving you from temporary troubles or thankfulness for saving you from eternal torment? For those of you who may not know who Jesus is in a saving way, notice the detail of the angel's words right here. He says, this child, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Only the sins of God's people are covered by Jesus' death. So the question is, are you one of God's people? Do you belong to Christ? Does he belong to you? And I invite you to call upon the name of the Lord in your heart. Confirm in your soul through prayer that Jesus is not just a Savior. He's your Savior. There's a big difference between those two. And the good news of Christ comes to everyone. And we'll see this in more detail next week as Dr. Campbell teaches us about the Magi. These Gentiles who were so far apart from the people of God, yet came to the feet of Jesus to worship him. May we all do that this morning. So this baby is the son of God. This baby is a savior, but he's also the center of the scriptures. 
Like the entire gospel story, Jesus' birth is rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, as a challenge, do you desire to know Jesus more and to understand who Jesus is? If that is your desire, then I challenge you to read the Old Testament just as much, if not more, than you read the New Testament. Because it is incredible how often the New Testament's story, logic, argument, and points are rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. Because these Old Testament scriptures, they're not just stories for encouragement, for us to be like, woo, God's a great God. No, they were written for our instruction. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully trying to understand how was Christ in them. And later on it was shown that they were serving not just themselves, but the Old Testament saints were serving you and me by proclaiming Christ. So Matthew is telling us that this unbelievable situation of Jesus' birth is happening to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah. And in fact, he's not just citing this, this one line. He's, inciting, he's citing the whole story. In the same way that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is calling to mind all of Psalm 22, not just that little bit. So Matthew's doing the same thing as well. So if you open your Bibles, look back at the genealogy um, that Dr. Campbell taught us last week. And this reference that Matthew tells us is to the time of King Ahaz, which is, I believe, number 23 on this genealogy, if you look all the way down. He was the father of someone a bit more famous than him, Hezekiah. And this is where this quote comes to us from in Isaiah chapter 7. But King Ahaz, just to give you a little bit of background, it said that uh, he began ruling at the age of 20. He ruled over Judah for 16 years, and he was not a great guy. He was not a good king, as this happens way too often in the scriptures. It says he even sacrificed his son for a pagan ritual. So he's not just not a good guy. He's like a really not good guy. And God responded to the sin of the king by bringing disaster upon this nation. Their two closest enemies, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, decided to gang up and take over little Judah. And Ahaz, rightfully so, was terrified. And the Lord appeared to him and says, don't worry, Ahaz, I will protect you. And Ahaz will have none of it. He does not believe in the word of God. So the Lord kindly assured Ahaz, but Ahaz was filled with unbelief. And this is where this passage comes to us. So if you have your Bibles, read along in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. This is the Lord speaking to Ahaz a second time. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, in some kind of false piety, he said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Really, he's just covering his sin. And so Isaiah said to him, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Ring any bells? God sought again and again to assure Ahaz of his all-sovereign protection, yet Ahaz doubted with unbelief. 
And it, really, this response is God rebuking him for his unbelief. It, in essence, God is saying this. He's saying, I will fulfill my promises to send a good king through you and despite of you. I will use your wicked unbelief to eventually be, bring about Christ. And this, this, this is why I encourage you guys to read the Old Testament, because it is filled with references to Jesus from the beginning to the end. At the, at, in Genesis 3, right after the fall, you get this glimpse in Genesis 3.16 that the seed of the woman someday would crush the head of the serpent. And right there, Adam and Eve were thinking, who, who is this going to be? Who is this going to be? And all through the scriptures, it gets narrowed. In Genesis 12, we learned that this, this child was going to be a part of Abraham's line. And then in Genesis 49, we learn this child is going to be a son of Judah. And then in Deuteronomy 18, we learn that this child is going to be a prophet who speaks the word of the Lord. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we learn that it will be a son of David. And then in Isaiah 7, we learn not only all those things, not only that God has remembered his promise, but also that this child will be born by a virgin. And it will be a sign of God's protection and a sign of his steadfastness. A baby boy born without a man who embodies the very presence of God. And the Old Testament yearns to teach us of Christ. Oh, that you and I would see it that way. Jesus was not an afterthought. Jesus was not a divine band-aid over the kingdom of Israel's screw-ups. No, Jesus was the main plan from the very beginning, which is why we must believe that Jesus is the center of the scriptures. And his very name, Emmanuel, should give us confidence in the midst of any trouble. Why? Because because Christian confidence is not based upon our circumstances. It's based upon God with us. This is why when, when Joshua was entering the promised land, facing more enemies than he could count, He had no fear because God told him, I am with you. This is why David could write in that beautiful psalm that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. This is why Paul, when he was preaching the gospel and it seemed like he started a riot in every single town that he went to, this is why he could keep doing that with confidence because God appeared to him and said, I am with you. And this is why you should continue living and striving to to live a holy life. And this is why this church must continue to preach Jesus, even though we ourselves are riddled with sin and brokenness, it seems. Why? Because God is with us. And friends, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust him with all that you are, God is with you. Those two are not separate. They are together. Just contemplate the years and the wisdom and the perfection and the power and the beauty and the love of our Lord and that God is with you when you trust in Christ. What comforting words these must have been to Joseph as he was thinking about this crazy situation. And and no doubt, him and Mary clung to this promise. We're going to see in the next couple weeks that the rest of their life was anything but easy. This is the gospel, remembering that Jesus is all and in all. So our our passage this morning closes with uh, the confirmation. In verses 24 through 25, read along with me. 
When Joseph woke from his sleep, from the vision of the the angel, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This passage ends with the confirmation of God's word through Joseph's obedience. And just notice the simplicity. It says that Joseph did as the angel told him. This is that simple. What, mo- what a model of obedience this is. He left that moment, spoke to Mary, received her as his wife, and went along the way. And I- I'm sure the town was all abuzz and filled with gossip about Joseph marrying that scarlet letter woman, Mary. But he had no fear. Why? Because he trusted in the word of the Lord. Not only that, but they moved forward in faith and named the child the most beautiful name that exists, Jesus, Savior. Oh, that you and I would be so quick to obey as Joseph was. So so may this close to our Advent story serve as a further comfort to you and I that God's word accomplishes its purposes, as it did in Joseph. Yes, sanctification, killing sin in your life is hard work. And it should require all of your attention, all of your power to kill sin in your life. But at the same time, it's entirely God's work. It's the beauty of the gospel. What is begun by grace will be finished by grace. So my question to you, do you struggle to obey the Lord in some area? Perhaps something's coming to your mind right now. Do certain sins attack your soul and make your conscience weak? maybe in a way that no living person knows. Well, God knows. And I urge you to have faith and trust in the word of Christ that it not only announces change and announces the gospel, but it will change you. Be patient, be faithful, like Joseph was. This Advent season is incredibly special, but let us always remember that although Christ's first Advent was humble and unseemly, his second advent will be the exact opposite. When Jesus comes again, it will be in power and it will be in glory and nobody will miss it. Not a soul will have an excuse. It will be unimaginably powerful and beautiful. There will be no time to change your mind when Christ returns again. Believe in Jesus at his humblest so that you might receive him at his most glorious. Today is the day of salvation, friends. So do you trust in Christ? Is this little baby who would grow up to be the man that dies for sin, is he your only hope in life and death? Because it's very simple. It's the overall message of this passage. If Christ is not yours, then God is not with you in a saving way. In fact, his judgment is upon you. But the good news is that if Christ is yours, then there is nothing you lack for all of eternity. All of the glories of heaven are promised to you through Jesus. God with us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful message. It is so easy to just glance through it without diving deep into the details of the gospel. Lord, may we trust that in the same way that Christ came into this world humbly, Lord, that he also can come into our hearts and our souls this day and make us people of God. I pray that we would treasure this statement, Emmanuel, God with us. I ask this in the